Before we get started with this week's episode, just wanted to let you know that one of the sections in this week's show contains details of sexual assault. If that's something you don't want to hear, don't worry. We've put it right at the end of the show and we'll warn you later on as well. This is Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. I'm your host, Alex Ballinger. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't be afraid to join in the conversation on Twitter at IBL Podcast for the show, at AMB Hack for me personally. We've got some brilliant conversations for you this week. To start things off, we're going to be talking to Sean David, who is head of print at the Bristol Post. We're going to be talking about what she does with the paper, what her job involves, but also how her job has changed in recent years. And then we're going to be talking with freelance journalist Neil Maggs. Neil has been carrying out a series of in-depth interviews with sports people that grew up in Bristol. So we'll find out a little bit more about that. And then finally, we're going to be talking to reporter Michael Yong, who has been working on an interview with a woman who was sexually abused when she was younger. Michael talks to us about how hard it is reporting these stories, but also what it was like for this person to come forward and tell details of what happened to her. That's going to be at the end of the show. First things first, let's jump into our conversation with Sean David, who runs the print side of things here at the Bristol Post. I am head of print at the Bristol Post. Right, Sean, I want to start off by giving you some feedback from my nan. She's not happy when I'm not in the paper. When my stories don't make it to print, she's pretty livid about the whole thing. And so she asked me to pass it on to you. And I thought I'd do it on the show. Oh, I'll bear that in mind. Please put me in every... Because I've got to go home and explain to her why I'm not in the paper. And she's not happy about it Oh, dear. Well, you know, write, write better stories. <laughs> that is, you know what? I've heard, I'm hearing that a lot, to be honest. Um, so, Sean, tell us... I've been a digital journalist for a couple of years now, so I don't really know how newspapers work anymore. Tell us what you do. That's a very big question. I I suppose in many ways I take on the job of a traditional chief sub-editor, but at the same time I'm playing partial news editor role. Effectively, in a nutshell, what I do is make a newspaper out of all of the stories that our digital team write every day for our website. There's a lot of elements to that. There's me keeping track of the news agenda, so I know what you guys have written, what you guys are writing, what matters to the city, what matters to our readers, what our readers want to hear, what we think are important stories that the readers don't know they need to hear. So I have to make a value judgment every day because you guys write so much stuff that I have a finite amount of space in the newspaper, which obviously you don't have online. So I have to make a call on what is actually going to go into the paper every single day. I work in collaboration with our editor-in-chief, Mike Norton. So he has the final say, but in his absence, I will make those decisions. And then the other half of my job, I suppose you could call it physically putting the paper together. You know, I decide the running order of the stories, but then I also decide how they're going to look. I work with our photographic department. They will either send me pictures or I will discuss with them what kind of pictures we would like to put in the paper, um, how we can best visually explain a complicated story or a quirky story, that sort of thing. So I, I turn the words that you guys write and the pictures that our photographers take into a physical product that I hope people want to buy. So you've got a lot of power in the office, basically. Here's the gist of it. A lot of jobs, a lot of power. Uh, a lot of responsibility, <laughs> not necessarily a lot of power. So how much has your job changed in recent years then because people might not realize that the way that the post and bristol live work is completely different to how it's ever worked before people still ask me when's your your print deadline and personally i don't have a clue to be honest because that's not we're not told to work for the print deadline we work for the online deadline so what how much has your job changed oh it's flipped on its head it really has i mean i've been doing this job for well i've been a journalist for 
almost 14 years. I've been a sub-editor for 12 and I began my career as a print journalist. When I first started, my office in Swansea wasn't even responsible for our website. It was something that people in London managed. But now it's entirely flipped on its head because the world has, has changed so much and people want their news immediately, straight away. In a, in a newspaper, I can't provide that necessarily anymore. Previously, we would always be writing ahead. We would be saying, this is happening today, but meaning tomorrow, whereas now we are writing for today, meaning today. It's a different audience, but it's not necessarily a different demographic. I think that people who read a newspaper aren't necessarily different ages and, and, and genders and that sort of thing than the people who are reading a website. They just want a different sort of product. So in, in many ways, the paper I'm creating and the thought processes I use to create a newspaper are the same as they've always been. The difference is how the stories come to me and the treatment that I give them in, in certain ways. So, for example, on our website, we'll have a lot of live blogs. So then I will have to take that story rework it so that it works for tomorrow's reader instead of for today's reader. But it's still the same information that needs to to be transmitted. Sometimes a story will develop throughout a whole day. Now, our reporters are able to document that story throughout the entire day, but then I have to take it and change it into past tense and move it on for the next day's paper. So our reporters now are working in a, a much more immediate environment. It, it's my job to make sure that what they're writing is 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 as relevant and up to date for tomorrow's reader as it is for today's reader on the website. What do you think that the Bristol Post means still? As a physical paper, it's always seems so important to have a physical paper out in the world. What do you think it means to the city of Bristol really to have that, you know, the actual physical newspaper? I think it's absolutely crucial that every area in the country in the world is covered by a good local press. The people who go to our website are coming to us because they trust us. I would hope that that's because we are continuing to build a trust with a, a, a growing audience of lots of new people who are coming to us. But that trust in that brand has been built on the back of the legacy of the Bristol Post. If you're coming to our website, it's because it's in your phone, it's on your computer, it's on your tablet. It's like you're choosing to visit a place. But we have to have the Bristol Post in our newsagents and in our supermarkets where it has a physical presence so that people can see that we exist, so that people know that we're still there. We're the voice of the city, for the city. We want people to, to trust us. We want to be able to tell stories and reach people in every part of the city. And I think that, you know, we work very hard to try and do that. And there's always scope to go further and to reach new people. If we have a physical presence everywhere people go, they can't miss us. They, they know that we're there. They know that we're a, a trusted brand and we're on their side and that we're going to be holding our authorities to account, telling the stories that matter to the people that matter. And that's every person in Bristol, as far as we're concerned. I think one of the things that people might not realise is that while print, circulations everywhere you know across the whole of the UK and probably across the world are mm. falling as more and more people get their news online we're being read by such a massive amount of people which is more than I imagine we've ever been read by before which just seems like such a it just seems like such an obvious thing that people don't really seem to notice sometimes you know that yes while everywhere fewer people are buying newspapers more people are reading the news which I always find really interesting. Absolutely we we live in quite miraculous times where we can communicate with people in so many different ways now. But that doesn't make print less of a legitimate medium. There are still plenty of people who want 
to buy the newspaper and we try and make it as attractive for for as many people as possible to to buy it who may not usually buy it we've also got you know our, our legacy buyers people who who will always like i hope your grandmother for example will continue to pick us up the print is still a legitimate voice for us to be able to tell people's stories and we're lucky that we can work in conjunction with the digital side of things with Bristol.live. You know, we've got our Facebook channel, we've got Twitter, we're on Instagram. There are so many ways that we can reach all these different people. I don't think it's detrimental to our, our print product. I think it's just part of growing our business and growing our brand. Even to this day, is despite being an online reporter for a couple of years now and most of my work going online, I still absolutely love being in the paper and I love getting the front page as well. It always is a massive thing when I see my story on the front page, I always get so excited still. And I suppose it's, it's just a nice thing to have isn't it as well still do you find reporters are still really keen to be in the paper and really keen to get on the front I do yes and it's especially sort of um, heartening for me when the younger reporters come up to me and say you might not have seen this story on the website today but please can it go in the paper you know the younger reporters will come and pitch their stories to me in the same way that they'll pitch their stories to the digital news desk and it's really exciting for me that that young people are still interested in print because we live in a world now where Everybody wants everything and everybody gets everything straight away through their digital media. I do as well. You know, I I work for our print product, but I am super active on Facebook. I get all my news online, you know, sort of first thing in the morning, but I will still go and buy a paper. I do have a foot in both camps and I'm obviously still a a great advocate for print. But yeah, the, the reporters really do like seeing their bylines and the public likes seeing their stories in, in print as well. Reporters are coming up to me and saying, my story went online this morning. Can you please make sure it goes in tomorrow's paper? You know, they're asking, when is it going to go in the paper? Because people like like to keep a newspaper. And I think people put a value on it being in the physical product because any one of us can put a picture online straight away like that. We've all got a Facebook. We've all got a Twitter. We've all got an Instagram. So while it's nice to be able to broadcast yourself in that way digitally... It's a lot different, I think, when people see things in the newspaper because that isn't a choice that they have made. We all make our own choices to put our own pictures on Facebook or on Twitter, but it's up to to, to Mike Norton or to myself what is going to go in the print product. I only have a certain amount of space. Everything earns its place to be in the newspaper, and that's why I think it's precious to people. Do you find that different stories work in the paper than work online then as well? Is there sort of, you mentioned there's a slightly... Um, slightly different sort of readership for online versus print. So what kind of stories do work well and what doesn't work so well for print, do you think? That's a complicated question. I can't simply reproduce everything that goes on the website in print, even if I had a thousand pages a day, because there are certain things like video is a very obvious one. I can't put videos in the paper. Not yet. Uh, not yet. One day, one day, like like Harry Potter. Videos are a, a very good example. A lot of the time, you know, a story will be wrapped around uh, dash cam footage. I can take stills from it, but you don't get the same impact in print as you do watching a video online. We rarely do what you do online where you will print the full statement from somebody. This is something that sport do quite a lot, but we do it in news occasionally as well. We will cherry pick the best bits and then we can always say, visit bristol.live for the full statement if you want to, because space is a consideration as well. Live blogs, they can go one of two ways. If it's a a traffic blog, we're unlikely to reproduce that in print unless it's a big story about a crash that we can continue the story on the next day. If it's just been a minor accident that's backed up traffic all the way through the M32 through the city centre, I won't reproduce as many words in print as you have online. I may run 150 words to say, the traffic was bad yesterday. This is why, 
just for people who may have been caught up in it, but online, that would be a long read that was updated frequently. But on the other hand, we've had live blogs that have been excellent and have worked really, really well in print. We had one night where one of our reporters went to, I believe it was the 999 call handlers centre. And that was fantastic because that was a a blow by blow account of every call that came in, how it was handled, what the environment was like, what happened there. And so all I had to do with that was flip it on its head chronologically, start at the beginning of the evening and run it right the way through. And it was a timeline of what happened. And it was actually a really, really interesting new way of presenting a story like that. Five years ago, we might have sent a reporter and they would have sent a really brilliant, long, you know, thousand word bit of prose. But this way, it's broken up. It's different because I think the way people are reading is changing because of the way we consume media digitally. When you scroll through Facebook, you get lots of little sound bites. You know, everybody is reading things in short bursts. So a live blog in that sort of environment works fantastically in print. There are lots of ways that we can adapt digital work for print. I'm not sure what to say about what works in print better than online. Online, a lot of the time, you will have lots of different stories around the same topic. For example, we're doing a lot of work at the moment with The Grand Appeal because of Gromit Unleashed 2 coming up. So we're doing loads of stories online for that. But in the paper, I will take them all from all the different places online and I will tie them all together on one spread. There are ways in which we work in harmony between print and digital that I actually think we do very well in this office. One of the other things as well, this probably one of the biggest differences between online and print is the front page as well. Mm-hmm. Front page is always a massive thing. A lot of thought goes into every front page mm-hmm. for the post, doesn't it? How important is it to have that story that really grabs people when they walk past the paper? It's absolutely crucial. It's it's really, really important. that we, we always call the front page the shop window because that is how we get a casual reader's attention in the shop. And that is how we project what we think as uh, an organisation, what we think the most important story in Bristol on any given day is. That's how we can showcase our great platforms that we have in the paper. On a Monday, we have, well, at the moment we don't because the, the football season's over, but we have our Green Un supplement. On a Tuesday, we have Travel Tuesday and we have an incredible nostalgia supplement called Bristol Times. On Friday, we have our Glossy Weekend magazine. We have a lot of extra stuff in the newspaper that you wouldn't necessarily know about unless you look at the front page. So the, the the lead story of the day, that's crucial. And I'm very lucky here that we have a fantastic team of reporters who write so many brilliant stories that some days it's really hard for me to choose what is the, the best story today. I have a limited number of slots on the front page to showcase all of the brilliant stuff that we have in the newspaper. But the the, the splash is the most important thing on the front page. We, we sometimes compare the the Bristol Live Facebook to the front page, but they're not quite comparable, are they? Because you have multiple slots throughout a day. And Mm -hmm. it is is a lot of, on Facebook is one of the main ways that people see our brand, I suppose. You know, a lot of people will only see their news through Facebook and that's what will take them through. But print is more permanent, isn't it? And it really is more more striking to be walking, you know, through a shop and you see the front page. And if it's a story you're interested in, the likelihood of you picking that up is is increased, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, in in some ways it's, it's the same... In some ways, it's the same as a Facebook post, and in some ways, it's not. Because if you're scrolling through your Facebook feed or if you're walking through the shop, the principle is the same. We want to make you stop and click or pick up the paper. That's that's the idea of it. But on the front of the paper, I've got maybe I've got up to sort of seven entry points, if you like. So somebody might stop and pick up the paper 
because they've seen what the splash is and that's that's what we want every day. But they might also stop and pick up the paper because they think, oh, today's job's day, it's Wednesday. Or they might stop and think, oh, hey, it's two for one cups of coffee at, at this local coffee shop, whatever. There's lots of reasons I want to try and make people stop and pick up the newspaper. But I also have to be very consistent with the front page because you need people to recognise us in the same way on Facebook, your Facebook posts are very uniform because that is the way that medium works. So I need to have consistency. I That's why you see the same fonts every day. You see the same colours every day. The masthead's in the same place every day. It seems like really basic things, but we need that familiarity because that is what makes our brand consistent and that's what builds that trust with our with our customers. So in short, anyone listening should go out and pick up a copy of the Bristol Post? Every single day, Monday to Friday, yes, please. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> Thanks for your help. Thank you for having me. I've got to admit, I really don't know enough about the print side of the paper here, so it's really good to have that chat with Sean. Right, let's go straight into our next conversation with freelance reporter Neil Maggs, who has been looking at people that were born and bred in Bristol who are doing amazing things in the sports world. I've just been watching some of your work this morning. You've done some big interviews. You've interviewed the mayor of Bristol, interviewed some Bristol sports legends, really, but I'm hoping this will be the biggest interview you've had to do. We flip the tables on you. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm in all of your your presence at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> it's the, yeah the Paxman-esque yeah, vibe. The, I like yeah, to get I'm waiting for I these think. tricky sort of journalistic questions and stuff. You know, these curveballs we're going to throw in. <laughs> <laughs> so, I wanted to talk to you first things first, really, about being a journalist from Bristol because what people might not realise, or they might actually, is that in journalism now people don't tend to stick around in the places you know that they're from and they don't work in the same places. You can go to newspapers everywhere and it'll be a massive mix of people, but fewer and fewer people from those areas, it always seems. So do you think it's quite important to you to be a Bristol, uh, Bristol journalist in Bristol? I think it's good to get a, to get a balance. I think sometimes if, you, if you've got people from, from outside the city, and as you say, you know, people do you know, move around, sometimes having fresh, fresh eyes, fresh ears to things is good. But also, it's it's about having a having a balance. It could be tilted a bit too far one way. But I think sometimes, I guess, a great advantage of having a local journalist is that you have those connections. You have traction into sort of certain communities in the city, which you can get if you're outside the city. But it might take a little bit longer to get there. Um, but I think it's I think it's important sometimes to have um, local people telling stories also about their own communities as well. I think journalism has changed a bit now. I think traditionally it was the the professional telling stories on behalf of people, whereas I think more and more now, you know, through the changes in sort of social media and stuff, people are able to tell that direct. So I think the role's kind of changed a bit. Mm, absolutely. It's about pushing other people forward as opposed to kind of advocating on their behalf, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is quite nice sometimes when some people are trying to make contacts and things like that. When you're from Bristol and you're working in Bristol, you know, you might get a text from an aunt or something like that who's giving yeah. you a story. And you're like, that's quite handy. It saves me some work trying to go out and find stuff, doesn't sure. it, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So about yourself... Um, Whereabouts in Bristol were you from originally? So I'm from, I was born in Eastfield, so I grew up just at the bottom of um, Eastfield Park. Uh, then we moved to Eastern, then to Fishponds when in my late teens. And I've lived, I've kind of moved around a bit, travelled around a bit. I've come back, I've been in Eastern now, where we lived for about 12, 13 years. I think we went to the same school as well, didn't we? Did you go to Dynan? I did go to Dynan, yes, yeah. yeah. I see, I thought we might be the most famous alumni from there along with Sid from Skins but uh, Sajid Javid has gone and taken that mantle from us now yeah I think, he has hasn't, hasn't he? he yeah I know what was his home, home, home secretary, home secretary. Yeah. yeah I feel um, like that trumps us a little bit I think yeah a Bananarama though uh, do you know what I didn't even know your time. Yeah. one of them went to Mangotsfield and one of them went to Dainand they don't have a famous wall at Dainand no, they, they need to get a famous wall because they've, yeah. Yeah, they've got some pretty good alumni from there now I, my, all my brothers and sisters because I'm a quite a big family all went to what was then Whitfield which is now Bristol yes yeah yeah but I think 
come the end, my brother didn't have a particularly good time there. So I'm the youngest. They sent me up to Downend because there weren't many people from my end up there. Uh, who else is from there? There's um, the local councillor as well, Afsal Shah. Uh, he, course, he, yeah, he was yeah, in yeah. my year. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite so it's, a few. Yeah, it's a pretty decent squad. I never realised yeah, that when I went there. Yeah. There's some decent people. I think mean, we should push school. then to get some kind of you know, big photos of us on the wall. Yeah, maybe. I, and because there's only a few of us, they could be big pictures as well. Huge. They? Massive <laughs> yeah. pictures. Huge, yeah. Um, so you've been working on a really interesting series called Bristol Born and Bred. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about it. What's the idea? Uh, I think the, the t- t- for me, two things. One is back to that local thing, is uh, trying to, to tell a story um, using video going back to so basically what we do is we go back to an area where a, an elite sports star is from. Um, I think it's quite nice to not always ask questions about results, who's, who's won what, that kind of thing. But actually I'm more, I'm more interested in my kind of sport journalism is more about people. So the sport is the kind of vehicle really, or the access into finding out about the person or the project. So for me, it was one thing that I don't always think uh, traditionally we celebrate success brilliantly in Bristol. We started to a bit more lately, but I think there are some, you know, we've got some world champions in Bristol. We've got some really high level sport people that haven't always got um, as much press coverage as they could. Or I think because there tends to be, you know, football rugby orientated, which is great. And there's, you know, we've done Bobby Reed, Ollie Clark in the, in the series, but there's also some really high level sport people um, in other sports, you know, darts, we've just done with, with Chris Mason, uh, basketball, Greg Street, sort of local kind of homegrown stars. So we go back to their school, youth club, club, uh, sport club where they started and just kind of talk to them about their journey into into elite sport. So, Yeah, so like you say, you've done some sort of quite well-known people. So you've done uh, Bobby Reed as well, Lee Haskins, quite a few people will be well aware of. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't realise that until yeah, I watched that episode. Actually, so that was, that was worth watching. Um, but then also, have you tried to maybe bring some people out of the woodwork, some people that, you know, you might not realise are from Bristol or that you might not have heard of before to try and get them to a wider Bristol audience as well? Yeah, I mean, so my, my background, I, I've actually come into journalism quite late. So I, I was worked in sport, community sport development for 15 years or so across the city and beyond. And I come into writing and, and uh, radio and stuff like that probably about five years ago, specifically looking at that community stuff, community sport stories, projects that don't always get, you know, again, get kind of coverage. So for me, really, the top end stuff isn't really what I'm massively interested in. Um, but I guess it's the, the reason for doing this is is really just to give an opportunity for some of them to talk about the stuff they don't usually talk about. But no, I'm 100%. I mean, I've, I've seen you guys have been doing some stuff lately with the uh, the guy selling the big issue and the, somebody that was a fruit and veg, all those kind of type of stories of real local characters. And you've got loads of them in sport, yeah. And and you know the the plan is hopefully to do to do some of them most definitely, yeah. The the videos are really nice because they've got quite like a light hearted feel to them. But then you're not you don't shy away from pretty hard hitting issues either as well, do you? You know, talking to people, especially for those longer form interviews that you've been doing, you know, half yeah. an hour chats, you really do bring out some harder hitting stories from these people. Do you find? Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, I mean, I've, I'm kind of I'm sort of targeting people that I think uh, can be quite candid. Um, and some of them I may know, you know, you said being in Bristol, you know, it's a small place, you have kind of networks and things. So, um, hopefully where it's where it's different, I don't want it to be a, and if it doesn't come, come across as a kind of formal interview, it's more of a conversation between two people. Um, and yeah, if they, if, you know, and hopefully a bit lighthearted so you can kind of relax them a bit. And some of the, some people have said it's been really nice to, I've never been interviewed like that. You're not trying to be arrogant by saying that, just, just, just the response from that. They're not used to it. They're used to being PR'd. 
and managed it, whether that's in a press conference or somebody stood alongside it. So it's a different kind of feel. Um, in terms of the pressing stuff, yeah, I think sometimes if you've if you've disarmed somebody um, through humour or kind of they feel relaxed, they're more likely to be revealing about themselves. I think there's a kind of um, there's a a sort of new wave trend in journalism to hit somebody with a really hard question straight away. And often that just closes them down and you don't get anything. There was an interview that ITV did with Tyson Fury recently, did you see? Yeah. And the person came in with, um, uh, you know, straight away asking questions about stuff he'd said around homophobia and things. And all he said is no comment, mm. no comment, no comment. I think if he'd have approached that in a slightly different way, you might have got something back from him. Yeah, I remember seeing something similar with, um, it was Bradley Wiggins in yeah. recently and they sort of had gone to his house and they tried to doorstep him and yeah. he basically did the same thing. He just said, no, I'm not going to do that but then he has given you know more in-depth interviews and more candid interviews so I yeah. think you're right about that yeah that the way you approach people and yeah. giving them a bit more time as well rather than being like I want to talk about this thing and also I think and this is a very unjournalist thing to do is being prepared to share yourself I think actually you know being vulnerable or saying well I've been through uh, something or um, it, it can can disarm somebody as well I think because often uh, we don't do that, do we? It tends to be, it's not about us, it's about the other person. I think that there's been a bit of a subtle change in that. It's more informal, um, I guess. And I suppose that works over the course of a series like Bristol Born and Bred because people, well, they'll get to know these people that you interview and they'll get to know you as well, I suppose. So they need to be able to connect with you on a, on a level as yeah, well. Yeah, hopefully. And, and, and I mean, the, the part, the reason for calling it that as well is also being, like, as yourself, a, a local person that knows some of these areas. So when we are going to, we went to Nad Naramani, who's a UFC fighter, he was talking about, um, he learned to f- fight in the play, in the playground in his infant school. And my, my, my grandmother literally lived two streets away. That So I'm kind of sharing that a little bit as well. So it's, a, it's a, you know, hopefully it's a bit more of a, something a little bit, a bit different and a bit more kind of revealing. So who's up next for the series and what are the plans we- for it? This weekend is Greg Street, who's a uh, former captain of the Bristol Flyers basketball team, a local lad from Easton, done an awful lot of community coaching over the years. And he's sort of developed, you know, basketball's changed, you know, hugely now. The, the Bristol Flyers and the BBL, they're all professional. They've got overseas players from America. But Greg was their longest serving player, was there for, I think, about 13 years and has seen the development of the sport from what he said was about six people watching to them get you know getting a, a thousand or a couple of thousand up at, up at Filton, so he's but he's retired. He's, he's just become a fireman. So That's a bit of a career change. Yeah, yeah. So he spent a bit of time talking about him being a fireman for a bit, and then there's a couple of which I can't say. There's a couple of uh, biggies come in that are not in the city anymore that are from the city. I think is it like anything. Um, you know, someone like Chris Mason saw that we did it with Lee Haskins. I thought I could do that. Is is an incremental thing. Um, but I'm hoping, uh, hoping to get. I don't know if I can say uh, Marcus Driscothic in the next couple of weeks, um, which would be good. Cool. And what's the response been like as well? Yeah, pretty good. Um, uh, there's been a few people on the forums and stuff that said I talk a bit too much, <laughs> which I've taken on taken on board. Um, been been really good actually. Yeah, um, and on me, uh, particularly sort of on social media comments on Facebook and Twitter, and it does help if the sport celeb kind of nudges it a bit themselves, because they've obviously all got decent followings. Um, yeah, really good really good feedback. Been quite surprised, really. Um, pleasantly surprised. You'd be getting people quite surprised about the people that you're getting in, and then also the stories they're telling, I suppose, as well. Yeah, I, I, yeah. That, that's what's been quite nice. It's not just that, oh, it's great, there's an interview with Bobby Reid, for example. It's like, oh, I've never heard him talking about what it's like growing up in Eastern as a young black kid, and maybe talking about, and he did, he was quite candid, about not enough young 
black footballers from inner city have gone on to play for Rovers and City. And for a professional footballer to say that, that's, you know, slightly controversial, but true at the same time. So as, on a slight side note as well, yeah. you've been um, working as part of the Year of Change, I understand as well. You've written for The Post and yeah. I'm sure for other places as well. But I've been really interested in your your views on getting more diverse people into the media, basically, mm. trying to get people from those areas in Bristol where you might not go into newspaper, you, you might not go into journalism. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your thoughts on that. In, in the sense of how you do that? Or just yeah. wh- why you think it's important, really? Uh, I mean, it's, it's fairly it's fairly obvious. I mean, I've worked across uh, a range of different media in the city and it is, you know, the reality is it is fairly obvious that there is a real shortage of local journalists, particularly from outside of some of the more affluent areas. Most most definitely there there is a real shortage. So I think that's, whilst maybe there is a slight defensiveness to that at one point, that's now been acknowledged and, and accepted. Second question then, because why is that important? I think it's important because if you get a wider range of voices, a wider range of perspectives, you're going to get more rounded journalism, I think. If you're in a little bit of an echo chamber sort of talking to yourself and you're not from areas where you're from or other parts of the city, you don't always kind of hear the an authentic message, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's absolutely. there's a degree of... And, and I think people are quite sceptical and quite cynical these days about journalists, you know, in some regard, quite rightly. In other ways, it's, it's a perception that needs to be challenged. There's, a, there's an issue of trust, I think. So if you are a young person from Hartcliffe that's embedded in that community, will possibly be trusted more than an outsider because, you know, you haven't got to get beyond that wall. Not always the case. Um, so for me, it's important because you're going to get a broader range of of, of, of stories, uh, perhaps more in depth, perhaps just, and also it's the right thing to do to be more representative in any sector, not just journalism. And, and you know, we're not just knocking our our sector because it's the same in, in others as well. Um, how you do that is, is more difficult. I think there's an issue about entry levels uh, in journalism that, you know, you have to have a, uh, you know, you have to have formal qualifications, you have to go to university. And I kind of think, well, some people, some of the best journalists nationally didn't go down that route. You know, that's quite a new phenomenon. I think maybe we need to think about how we target and whether there's kind of particular educational pathways, potentially, you know, some kind of mentoring systems, you know, the Post, the BBC, BCFM organisations that have good journalists there, potentially buddying up to aspiring young people. And it's, it's not trying to be... And I think this is the challenge that comes back to me because it's something that I'm quite passionate about. It's not trying to be like the Yorkshire Cricket Club where it's like everyone has to be from Yorkshire, nobody can be outside Bristol. It's not about that. It's I think it's just about trying to trying to offer opportunities to local people. And I think there, you know, there is a little bit of an issue in Bristol at the moment, uh, the gentrification debate, where there are an awful lot of people, particularly where I where I live, moving in from London. Bristol's becoming a metropolitan city, which is fantastic and is great. And Bristolians are very welcoming people. But sometimes we're a bit nervous about pushing ourselves forward. And if you look, a lot of leaders across different sectors in the city, a lot of them are from outside. And I think that it's it's we need to kind of bring and nurture homegrown talent as well. Not at the expense of people coming in, but as well. And I think it's a bit tilted um, too much in one direction. Um, but certainly the entry levels is, 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 a, is a huge thing for, for the industry, I think. Absolutely. Neil, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. It was really good to chat to Neil, another Bristol lad like myself. So it was really interesting to hear about the work that he's been doing with sports people from around the city. And now another quick heads up. The next section with Michael Young involves details of sexual abuse. If that's not something you want to hear, you should end the episode now. 
That being said, it's a really important conversation and it really shows the bravery this person showed by coming forward to talk about the things that happened to her. People being able to come forward and speak about their experiences is really important not only for the city, but anyone anywhere that has been through something similar. Let's hear from Michael now about this story. Hi, I'm Michael Young. Um, I'm the education reporter and also a news reporter here at Bristol Live, at Bristol Post. And um, I mainly write stories around education, homelessness um, and poverty, but obviously cover a range of subjects as well. So, Michael, what we're going to be talking about today is not the easiest subject in the world to be tackling. You seem to be the most experienced with covering these sort of stories, but we're talking about people that have come forward after suffering sexual abuse and talking about their experiences as a way of helping themselves, but also as a way of helping other people. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, thanks for saying that. Um, I don't think I'm particularly good. Uh, I think I do it like most other journalists do. Uh, over the last year, I've had quite a few cases of people waving their anonymity to talk to me about childhood sexual abuse. Um, it's obviously a subject that is very sensitive and, and very difficult to talk about. Uh, for many of the victims, uh, it's their first time telling their story, the first time putting their face and their name to their story. And um, it can be very, very difficult. At the same time, it gives them sort of that step to the next level. They they feel brave enough. You know, it takes a huge amount of bravery, don't get me wrong, to even tell their story to a police officer. Obviously, they then lead to prosecution and sentence. It takes a long time. A lot, a lot of sex assault victims might get to the point of prosecution and never get to see a sentence. Some of them don't even get to the point of prosecution. So it takes a huge amount of bravery to even tell that story to a police officer, much less tell it to the rest of the world. Um, and it can be difficult, but uh, it's important for an important step, I think. I think one of the interesting things that you just mentioned there that it's probably worth talking about a little bit is the anonymity. Because, I mean, people might not realise this, but if you are a victim of uh, any sexual offence at all, mm-hmm you are given lifetime anonymity, aren't you? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and why people are given that anonymity? Well, it's, it's, it's really meant to protect them. Um, that anonymity is enshrined in law. Obviously, it's not, um, it's not something that is given by, uh, say, editorial practice code or anything like that. It is enshrined in law that anyone who's been a victim or alleged victim of sexual assault is protected by law. Their identity is protected by law. That's hugely important because of the consequences of sexual abuse. Um, many of them go through many years without saying anything. Um, in this case with Alana Barnett, uh, which we've just wrote about for 20 years, she never told anyone what happened to her. And when she finally did, she did not think anything would come of it or anyone would believe her. Obviously they did. And, and her attacker uh, has been sent to prison. But it was it was tremendously difficult, but brave of her to do it. But it took 20 years, 20 years of self-harm, 20 years of, of pain, 20 years of trying to take her own life uh, through several ways. Um, and it was, it was, you know, just an incredible thing to meet her and just to watch, you know, her go through that process of telling her story. Um, it was very, very difficult uh, for her. More difficult for her mum, who was sat right next to her as well. But what an experience. I mean, what an experience for her and what an experience for her mum and for me. It is, it is difficult. So how did it come about then? Did she mm. approach you with the story then and said, I really want to tell what's happened to me? Not really. Um, it started because um, her attacker, and we can use his name, Stuart Loosemore, uh, a Bristlington bus driver, 
Um, Stuart Loosemore was convicted in court um, last year, in the autumn of last year, for that sexual abuse of Alana. And uh, on appeal, his sentence reduced to nine years from 11 years. And um, she was obviously unhappy about it because the high court judge had said that it was mainly non-penetrative and she was she was not happy about that and understandably so got in contact with us you know to complain we told her we could only report court proceedings but we want to tell her story as well which is hugely important um she said she'll think about it she got back to me and said you know what difference is it going to make and I explained to her that in some cases it's made a huge difference now, now not to waffle on but last year we did a case um, that resulted in a support group being set up informally um, for women who have been victims of childhood sexual abuse and as of Sunday just gone we had 308 members and it's just an incre- incredible thing to see that you know so many women are coming forward and telling their story even if it's in a close group. Uh, and so Alana telling her story was hugely important, not just for her, but also for any other victims of sexual abuse. Uh, it, hopefully what it will do is empower them to, to come forward, not necessarily to the press or to the media, but um, to the police mo- most importantly. Did Alana explain why she wanted to speak out as well? Did she sort mm. of say what she hoped to get from this story? Of course. Uh, for, for Alana, she's now you know, amazingly doing a a degree in psychology and with the Open University and she wants to help other people. She wants to help, you know, she wants to work with the NSPCC. She wants to know what it's like. If, if a child's been uh, being abused, she can go to them and say, I kept it in for 20 years. You shouldn't. People will believe you. People will listen to you. And that, that's a very powerful statement to children, especially especially from another adult, if their abuser is an adult, it, it can be a very powerful thing. But yeah. So it helps her come to terms with what happened to her and mm. sort of get it right in her own mind, I suppose, as well, you know, get a clear picture, but it helps future victims as well. Hopefully, yes. Uh, Alana suffers from severe PTSD as a result of this, uh, together with migraines, depression, anxiety, um, and loads of other mental health problems. She suffers, um, I think the most obvious sign of severe PTSD was when she was shaking throughout the interview and her mum a very brave mum Jackie told me her daughter had not stopped shaking for about 10 years uh, she lost her job as a result of it she became an alcoholic as a result of it but the most physical sign was that Alana not when she got anxious just at any moment could start shaking throughout the entire interview Alana cried Alana was shaking understandably so but most amazingly at the end of the interview she actually stopped shaking and she was talking more confidently. And her mum noticed this because Alana then stepped out of the room and I spent some time with Jackie. And Jackie was saying, my daughter stopped shaking. And, you know, for me, that was a huge moment. Maybe it's not something we can write about, but as a journalist, I mean, it means a lot. You see the impact, the, the, the real physical impact your stories are having, I suppose. Only within an hour, yes. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. When you're sat there and you're, you're speaking to Alana and her mum sat there, does it kind of dawn on you the responsibility on your shoulders as you're talking to them, you know, that mm. it's your job to tell their story and to tell it properly? Does that sort of hit you as you're sat there in that moment? Yes, there's a, there's a lot of pressure making sure you tell it accurately and making sure that you get all the facts right. You double check everything you do. But obviously in today's newsroom, uh, everything's extra quick. You know, we've got pressures, uh, 
deadline's no longer end of the day. I've always worked in daily papers, but you know, it's no longer end of the day. It's by, by the hour. Uh, and there's a real, you know, uh, eagerness, a hunger for news uh, out there in the audience. And, you know, we're gratefully so that they come to us, but, but also what's most important is telling that story accurately. Cause if not, it could lead not just to legal problems, it could lead to further problems for Alana. And it, it, it there, there is that pressure, but you know, it's pressure that every, I think every journalist deals with, uh, whatever the story. And I suppose you can remind yourself as well that you're feeling this pressure to get the story out there. But mm. what this person has gone through and is going through to tell you the story sort of puts it in perspective as well, doesn't it? Now, It's far more important. It's far more important than what I do. It's what she does and how this has affected her. You know, I'm, I'm just a, a vessel. I just tell the story. She's the one living it. And that's, that's the main thing for, for me uh, with, with most of my human interest stories, I would, I would say. Yeah. This is the first of a few stories of a similar sort of ilk that you've had where people have gone through awful, awful experiences like mm-hmm. this and have wanted to tell their stories. What are your thoughts when you're writing these stories? Is there anything that you try and put across? Is there sort of a message that you try and send through these articles? The main thing is bravery. I think um, I've got to know some of these women and men um, on a, such a personal level because we don't just interview we then keep talking to them um, and then we, we see if they're all right. Um, the, the, one of the first stories I did was, was in June last year for an amazing lady called uh, Kim. It's just incredible to see how far she's come. You know, she's gone back to work. She's uh, set up that support group. Loads of people are that support group now. <laughs> just think about the lives that she's touched. And if you think about the fact that it took a lot for her to even bring the case and a lot for her to even talk about it. Think about, you know, all the other women who, who, who could be empowered by it. So bravery and men, sorry. And obviously bravery is the most important message in, in these stories that, that you should, you should come forward. People want to listen and people will listen. So the men and women that come forward with these stories, do they find that it helps them come to terms with what happened. One of the things that really struck me about reading the piece about Alana was the way that she spoke. She spoke confidently knowing that he was in the wrong. But I think it felt like that was something that had taken a long time for her to to come to terms with as well, to understand mm. and to really, really get a different perspective on it, you know, from an outsider's perspective. That is perhaps one of the most important thing um, about what we do and why we do these sort of stories is that confidence, like you mentioned, Alana, when she first started speaking with me, was very nervous, understandably so. Um, when I brought up the bit about waiving her anonymity, she has to sign an actual form and I'm not allowed to influence her decision. So I don't say anything in any way um, and tell her the basics of it and let her decide. And, you know, for me, whether she decided to do so or not, it wouldn't have changed the fact that I was there. You know, she lives up north. We can't say exactly where, but she lives up north. Uh, it, I was still there to tell the story. But for Alana, it meant taking that step of confidence. Um, I hope with some of these stories that uh, it will be a step up in confidence. But keep it in mind that if they, they've suffered years of mental health problems or it might have led to alcohol abuse, self-harm, all these different problems are hugely complex and we're not talking about something that you can cure with a pill. And 
Um, so if they stumble, you know, hopefully the message is it's okay because that happens. And, you know, if you need help, I want to be there to help you. I want to be a friend. I don't want to be a journalist. Um, and sometimes, you know, I've, I've, sometimes it goes beyond just writing a story. It's just getting to know them and yeah, giving them a hand if they need. If there's anyone that's listening that has been through these sort of experiences, Mm. what would you say to them and what kind of organisations can they get in touch with who might be able to help as well? Now, specifically for childhood sexual abuse, I would say um, in any case of sexual abuse, speak to the police if you can. You can ring 999. That's hugely important. If somebody's in danger, ring 999. If you're unsure, you can ring 101 uh, and it'll put you through to your local police force, whether that's Bristol, um, for even Somerset Police or maybe even Gloucestershire, it'll be Gloucestershire Police. Um, If you think ringing the police is a step too much, there are loads of different helplines. If it's childhood sexual abuse, think about ringing the NSPCC. If you're a parent, uh, you can ring the NSPCC. I haven't got the number on me, unfortunately. It's in the story. Uh, If you are uh, under 18, you can also ring the NSPCC. I've rang the NSPCC as an adult before and... It was hugely encouraging to hear the way they talked you through it and to understand what it was all about. Uh, the NSP is a great organisation. Um, and then there is also obviously the Samaritans. If you are unsure about what to do, ring the Samaritans. The Samaritans is not just for people who have suicidal tendencies. It can be for anyone. I've rang the Samaritans myself, uh, not afraid to say um, for myself and for other people. And it, it, it was a huge thing, uh, a huge step to ring 116123, but it made such a difference. Um, the Samaritans are always there, uh, a great organisation again to ring. And they're very patient. You know, it never feels rushed. It took 45 minutes with me to talk me through these other things, step at a time. And it was very, very, very helpful. Yeah. Thanks very much, Michael, for your time. Yeah, thanks. Alana has shown incredible bravery in coming forward to speak about her experiences and it's just so important that there are people like Michael that are willing to listen and sensitively tell their story. Thanks to all of our guests this week for taking the time out to speak to me. That brings this week's episode to an end. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at IBL Podcast or me personally at AMB Hack. You can also rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. We've been produced by Matt Aldis. Thanks very much. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.